I'll read verses 47 to 56 again. Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 47. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that vengeance belongs to the Lord. We thank you that you have orchestrated all of history for the redemption of your people, for the vindication of your justice and your righteousness, so that when all is said and done, all of creation will stand and applaud you for being the just judge of all. Lord, we thank you that you will vindicate the righteous. We thank you that even as we see this scene of our Lord treated so unfairly, so unjustly, that you have and will continue to vindicate him. That even now, as redeemed rebels gather to worship the King who is seated upon the throne, the Lord Jesus is receiving the vindication. Lord, I pray that this hour of looking at your word would be an hour where all of the praise and all of the glory is given to Christ for what he has done for us. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come now and help us in light of your word to examine ourselves. Oh Lord, be with your servant. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, two Lord's Days ago, we, we skimmed the surface of this passage and we took note of the three separate parties that are being addressed 
There's Judas first in verse 50, Jesus said to him. Then there is Peter in verse 52, Jesus said to him. And then there are what I'm calling the captors, the crowd, who came after Jesus. In verse 55, at that hour, Jesus said to the crowds. And we looked at how all of the, the details, every piece of this scene is orchestrated for a purpose to display the plan of God in salvation, to give comfort to the people of God even now as we live as Christians. In other words, the goal was just to see that the scene here plays out as it should according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. There's no detail that we can take out and still receive everything that, we, that God would have us to receive from this text or even from the reality of history. So what we're going to start to do today and for the next two weeks is look at each party as Jesus addresses them. So we're standing from His perspective and looking at these, these three separate parties and holding Jesus as the judge. They have all come and, and, and while He is the one being taken captive, they stand before Him almost as criminals themselves. They have to answer to Him. He is the central figure in this scene speaking to each of these parties. And so we're going to begin to look at these parties and uh, look at their separate roles and see how these things might apply to us and how we can use this to examine ourselves. So we're going to start with Judas. We begin in verse 47a. It says that while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve. I told you that that phrase, one of the twelve, is meant to emphasize to us the nearness that Judas shared with Jesus. Now we are approaching the end of the role of Judas in the, in the narrative. We'll see Judas one more time in the next chapter and after that... Judas has, has played his part. And even here, this concludes Judas' role in redemptive history. Now, we've not taken any time to do any biographical sketches of the disciples, so this affords us a good opportunity to just recap the record of this man Judas, who's called the son of Simon Iscariot. As we look at this man, I want you to think about yourself. Look at Judas and look at yourself. It seems like every week one of the application points is examine yourself. I think that every time we come to the Scriptures, no matter, who the, no matter what the scene is, if we are learning something about our God and something about ourselves and what it is that God requires of us, we should be able to ask, Okay, then where do I stand in this spectrum? Here's God, the standard of righteousness. Here's what He requires of men, but here's what I know is true about myself. And so, so where am I? Not, not necessarily am I Judas, but just look at Judas and examine yourself. I want you to think in particular about your salvation. Our culture makes a lot of a lot to do about testimonies, personal testimonies. There are many who even would replace the proclamation of the gospel with the explanation of a personal testimony. Now, personal testimonies are not irrelevant. They're not completely irrelevant. And I want you to think about your personal testimony. Because what we're going to look at is Judas's personal testimony. And I want you to ask yourself, what makes me to differ from Judas? Think about how you became a Christian... 
your personal testimony should include something about who you were, what God has done, and who you are. How, how did you become a Christian? What is different about you now that you are a Christian? And again, what makes you to differ from Judas? Your personal testimony or our testimonies are not uniform. They're not all the same. John Flavel, I just read this quote and it, it happened to be fitting. He says, The work of grace is wrought in the people of God with much diversity of manner. Everybody's testimony is not the same. We have to be careful that we don't assume that everybody's testimony is going to look the same. But then later he comes back and clarifies, Nevertheless, what differences soever these things make, the change made by grace is a marvelous change. So while we don't expect everybody's testimony to look the same, what we can conclude should be the same is that when there is a work of grace, there is a change. You don't look like people who've not had a work of grace. You look different because grace changes people. Your testimony should include something like that. How, how am I different from, from who I was to who I am or maybe the unconverted man? How do I look different from those who do not have a work of grace? So consider your salvation... Consider your life in Christ as we look at this biographical sketch of Judas Iscariot. Consider first his calling. Paul tells Christians, consider your calling, brothers. Think about where you were when Christ called you. Well, let's think about Judas's calling. In Luke chapter 6 we read, and I read this several weeks ago, talking about the prayer life of our Lord. Luke chapter 6 verse 12, "...and these days he went out to the mountain to pray." And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. And then verse 16 of that chapter, Judas is named. So we have Jesus has this following of disciples. After the crucifixion and resurrection and ascension, we know that there are around 120 who were actual believers meeting together and praying and from that larger number, he calls out of that number 12 and he names them apostles. And Judas was one of the 12 apostles. In Matthew chapter 10, the same story, he called to them his 12 disciples and gave to them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. That's Matthew 10.1. And in verse 4, Judas is named. So the selection of Judas and the commissioning of Judas and the empowering of Judas as one of the twelve disciples or twelve apostles was no different than the other eleven. Christ prayed all through the night. He hand-selected twelve. In other words, it was in the divine providence of God that Judas has been brought into the inner circle of Christ's closest disciples. Judas was with the people of God, not just broadly, but in that close selection, one of the twelve. He was in that group that represented early on the foundation of the New Testament church. Whenever you see that number twelve, remember that's a, 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 a signifier of the people of God, twelve tribes of Israel, twelve apostles, 144,000, etc. Judas was one of those Judas spent three years, day in, day out, with Peter and James 
and John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, and Nathaniel, an Israelite indeed, Matthew, who penned the gospel that we're reading. Judas was with these men every single day for three years, in addition to the Lord Jesus, which gave rise to even more exclusive rights that Judas had, like his education. He was with the twelve disciples. Everything that we have recorded in the Gospels that Jesus taught broadly, Judas heard. Everything that Jesus taught in his inner circle, Judas heard. All of the teachings that Jesus gave that we don't have recorded, Judas heard. In Matthew chapter 13, 11, remember the disciples asked him, Why do you teach the people in parables? And Jesus responds to the twelve disciples, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given. To you, Peter, James, John, Nathaniel, Matthew, and Judas, and all the rest. In Mark chapter 4 and verse 34, it says that He did not speak to them, that is the crowds, without a parable, but privately to His own disciples He explained everything. To the twelve. The crowds got parables. And a lot of them walked away scratching their heads or hardened in their hearts and their unbelief. But then he would gather the twelve to the side and say, now let me explain this. Let me break this down for you. So we might, can, we, we might could call that extra special revelation from the mouth of Christ that other people did not receive. Judas was, as one of the twelve, present for the incarnate ministry of Christ just like the multitudes, but he was also given exclusive insight into many things that even the multitudes did not receive. Consider his ministry. Luke chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, it says, He called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal Verse 6 of that same chapter, And they, that is the twelve, departed and went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Judas is one of the twelve. Peter says in Acts chapter 1 that Judas was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. He was given power and authority from Christ. Judas would speak to demons out and they would say, yes sir. And they left. He cured diseases, healed people, preached the gospel of the kingdom of God. He had a real share, not a fake share, not a, a mimicking share. He didn't just follow Peter around saying, yeah, what he said. He had a real share in the ministry of the apostles. Now even... Knowing all that, we, we still tend to imagine Judas to be uh, this sneaky, conniving weasel of a man who's always shady, always suspect. You know, all of the disciples, the, the other eleven, they always wore bright colors. Judas always wore black. They were always in the light. He was always in the shadow. But that's not so. We've already seen in Matthew chapter 26. As they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Surely it's Judas. That's not what they said. Is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? <coughs> Peter and James and John and Nathaniel and Matthew, they suspected themselves 
before Judas. They didn't say, surely it's Judas. Is it I, Lord? We see Judas's apparent devotion to Christ. He did not have the reputation of eventual betrayer. He didn't wear a jersey that said betrayer or watch out for me. When many others turned away from Christ when he began to teach difficult things, Judas did not. You go to John chapter 6. You remember the crowds are following him, wanting free food and wanting to see miracles. And Jesus begins to teach hard things. Unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no share in me. You cannot have any part of me. And, and thousands, tens of thousands probably left Jesus and no longer followed Him. It says in John six sixty six. After this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with Him. So Jesus said to the twelve. Judas was one of the twelve. Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now in that passage, we learn from John that Jesus knew already about Judas, but Peter himself didn't suspect Judas. He didn't say, well, all of us except for Judas, obviously. He didn't say that. We, Lord, we have believed. We have come to know. Peter is assuming Judas is as he is, a true disciple and believer in Christ. So Judas was not known as sneaky. He was not known for his unbelief. He did not have the reputation of false professor. It was actually the opposite. He had the reputation of a believer. I think when, when we read that he used to help himself to what was in the money bag, that was something that probably came about later. I don't think we would assume that he was stealing money and, Judah, and Jesus was saying, well, leave the bag with him, or that never came up. It was probably later on when they looked in the money bag and they thought, well, there's not near as much here as there should be. Then they realized Judas would help himself to the bag, but he was not known as sneaky or unbelieving. In addition to all of that, these exclusive rights bred in him a familiarity with the practices and the habits of Jesus himself. As we've already seen in John 18, 2, now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples, the twelve. Judas knew where they were going to go. Why? Because Judas went there with them regularly to pray. In John chapter 13, in the upper room, Jesus wraps a towel around his waist, gets on his knees, and washes the dirty feet of Judas Iscariot. Judas had a close, familiar, formal, outward association with Jesus and the apostles. And yet, because the evangelists write in hindsight, we also get clues like this one in Luke 6.16. Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Peter in Acts chapter 1 verse 16, referring to Judas, says Judas who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Luke doesn't say Judas who was always known as the traitor. He became a traitor. 
Peter doesn't say, you know, he was always guiding people to arrest Jesus. No, he became a guide. We, we see from the language here that the apostasy of Judas and the betrayal of Judas was not something that always characterized him and his life with these men outwardly. It was something that came about and was eventually manifested over time to the point that we've already read in verse 48 of Matthew 26. Matthew just says, now the betrayer. And everybody in history knows who the betrayer is. The epitome of backstabbing is Judas Iscariot. That, that has come to be a, a euphemism for what we call people who are traitors. A Judas. That is the, 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 rep, the, the, the reputation that he will have for the rest of human history. Is the betrayer. Now, reading all of that and seeing all of that at one time, I think the, the application is obvious, right? What about you? What makes you to differ from Judas? How do you know that when you are dead, people will not refer to you as the apostate, the betrayer? What confidence do you have? Is it in experiences? Is it in a testimony? Is it in a lifestyle? Like providential association with the people of God. Think about providence. God orders all things. All things whatsoever come to pass. Every bit of it is ordered by God. So you're here. So just think back to events in history. What brought you here? Friends, family members, a spouse, Facebook, a message, curiosity. For whatever reason... Events have been orchestrated to get you here. Most of us have been here in this church for a while. Do you think that because God has worked providentially in every moment of your existence to get you to this point, that all of that somehow obligates Him to give you the new birth, to give you spiritual life, to save you? Does it mean that you're converted just because all of the events of history have brought you into association with the people of God. It wasn't so for Judas. His whole life brought him to this, to this point. The kiss on the cheek. It all led to the kiss. I assume it was on the cheek. It doesn't prove that you're converted. It proves God is good. It proves that at the judgment every mouth will be stopped and nobody's going to be able to say, Well, I didn't know. Nobody told me. Think about your education in, in spiritual, biblical doctrines. We, we should be learning Bible words, Bible phrases, doctrines, Bible verses, memorizing Scripture. We, over time, we become comfortable with speaking publicly about our quiet time and books that we're reading. Do you think that makes you a Christian? Because it doesn't. It didn't for Judas. I guarantee Judas knew more than we know up here. Active involvement in Christian ministry and service. Preaching, teaching, evangelizing, leading family worship, catechizing your children, getting more and more involved with the life of a church. Does any of that make anybody a Christian? It didn't for Judas. He was, he was in it. He had a share in the ministry, a real share. Do you have a reputation for 
devotion to Christ and His teaching when others fall away. Over time in this church, we, it, we eventually, it becomes easy to become more and more associated with that fringe extremist branch of Christianity that believes the Bible is the Word of God that men are to lead, that women should be wives and mothers, that children are a blessing, that God chose who would be saved before the foundation of the world. It becomes easy and easier and easier when at first it's difficult and it's easier and easier to be bold in those positions even as you see others fall to the wayside or, or rejecting biblical truth. Does any of that make you a Christian? It does not. It didn't for Judas. Familiarity with the things of Christ, the, the Christian community, the Scriptures, the songs we sing, the meetings we have, the, the language that we use when we talk to each other, the schedule that we have. First day of the week, we get together and worship. That's just what we do. It, it becomes normal. We get used to it. Do you think that any of that makes you a Christian? Because it didn't for Judas. It didn't work. Now, to be clear... Where there is a true work of the grace of God and the Spirit of God, these things will not be absent. But that doesn't mean that where these types of things exist in form, that there is necessarily a work of grace. We, we've, we just heard about children. As adults, we, are, we, we only uh, become better at deceiving others and ourselves. As children, we're good at it. We learn it at an early age. But as adults, we just progress. We become better and better at deceiving other adults and ourselves. So where, where these things are in form, that doesn't mean that a true work of grace has taken place. None of these things make you a Christian. As a matter of fact, these types of things are only going to serve to intensify the agonies of hell for millions of people. Because they don't make you a Christian. Judas was not a Christian. Now, we can look more at the betrayal. Now, keeping all that we know and all that we've seen of Judas throughout the Gospels up to this point, we, we see him in the text entering into the garden. The last time we saw him, he ducked out of the upper room. The disciples thought that he was probably going to buy some more stuff for the upcoming Feast of Unleavened Bread. But now he shows back up. We can almost picture Jesus has leading the disciples to the entrance of the garden and they, and they can hear this crowd from the chief priests and the, the scribes of the people, the group from the Sanhedrin as well as this battalion from the Roman army with all of their swords and their clubs and their weapons and their lanterns and their torches and Judas is the one leading. And so this dark silhouette walks into the garden as the lanterns come around and illuminate Judas's face, the disciples see... It's Judas. It's one of us. One of the twelve. One of their own number. You, you could have looked around that night and you would have seen twelve sets of feet that were a lot cleaner than the rest. Judas's feet was one of those sets. He had had his feet washed by the Savior earlier that evening. And yet, Jesus said, Not all of you are clean on the inside. Outwardly, he looked like one of the disciples. But here he comes leading this crowd who are going to arrest Jesus. 
We saw his preparations last week and, and took note of what it seems that Judas had expected. It says, And with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. It appears that Judas is expecting some sort of opposition, a fight. He's expecting that he's going to have to make a positive identification of the man Jesus. And so he's going to use his familiarity with Jesus and the disciples to gain access to Jesus. And the other 11 disciples are not going to expect anything. I mean, after all, it's Judas. Look at his feet. He's got clean feet like I got clean feet. He's one of us. So he walks right up to Jesus. Now Jesus had already told the disciples at least three times that he would be crucified at the hands of the chief priests. He's already blatantly displayed Judas as the betrayer at the Passover. Whoever I dip the bread in the cup and give it to, he's the man. He gave it to Judas. They all knew it. He sent him out to do what he was going to do quickly. And yet Judas plans and schemes and comes along with this crowd of people expecting some opposition, some sort of a fight when Jesus had told them over and over and over and made it very clear that he knew what was going to happen. So we learn from all of that that for all of his time with the apostles, all of his time with Jesus, for all of his education, for all of his ministry, Judas didn't know Jesus at all. He didn't know the man. He thought he did. And that really is the question when it comes to examining our testimony. The question is not what has happened, what have you done. The question is do you presently, actively know Jesus? Do you know the man? What is going to stop you from ending up like Judas? It is a true knowledge of Christ. None of the activities in which Judas participated apart from a true knowledge of God in Christ are of any positive spiritual value. And Judas displays here that he had no idea what was happening. Now hear this. It is possible that for all your time with Christian people, all your learning, all your busyness, Everyone around you being convinced that you are a Christian, it is possible that you are lost. A lot of people act like that's not so, but it's so. It is possible to have all of the outward appearance and even deceive everyone around you and still be lost. It is possible to die and spend eternity in hell and maybe nobody calls you a betrayer. Maybe everybody believes that you were converted. You, you, you deceive people until the end. And you can still be lost. It's very important that when I give the application, examine yourself. That you really do that. I don't just say it because I couldn't come up with a more creative uh, application point. I say it because I know that I have to make personal examination of my heart every single day. I have to get in myself, regardless of what anybody thinks. I have to get alone. If, and if you're not doing that, you, you have to be about that business. I can't examine you, truly. I can, I can ask questions, the elders can ask questions, and we can, we can hear your testimony, and, and we can look at outward things... But we can't get inside anybody's heart. So that's why we have to examine ourselves. It is possible to have all these things and yet still be lost. 
Notice again how Judas executes this plan flawlessly. Verse 49, he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Now the, the word there for kissed, again, because we're Westerners and we were already kind of a little grossed out about a guy kissing another guy, we tend to think this is just like a quick peck on the cheek. It just sort of, you know, bounces off of Jesus' face. But the word here is an intensified verb. It's not a peck on the cheek. This is a long, drawn-out PDA, public display of affection. Obvious and clear so that all of the soldiers would be able to really know, okay, that's the one he just kissed. And this makes Jesus more recognizable. And I imagine that Judas, no doubt, would be able to taste the blood and the sweat and the salty tears not knowing what had just transpired in the Garden of Gethsemane, but he would be able to taste that on his lips as he kisses. He gives this sign that will haunt him for all eternity. And, and that's it. The role that Judas plays in redemptive history is done according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That, that's all he has is a kiss. Notice again how Jesus responds. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Now the language here I said a couple weeks ago is difficult. If you have the footnote in the, in the ESV, it, it puts it in the form of a question. Friend, why are you here? The authorized version puts it in the form of a question. Wherefore art, art thou come? The New American Standard, friend, do what you came to do. It literally reads, we have the word friend, which is not the word for a close, intimate friend. A lot of the, a lot of the commentators say it's like saying comrade, which doesn't help us very much because we don't use that terminology either. I imagine if you've ever worked in a workplace with, around men, you've always got those guys who call everybody boss man. Hey boss man, hey boss man, and you're like, I'm not the boss. It's just a, a word of general acquaintance. Friend. And then we have a preposition of purpose, which we would say because, or if it's a question, for what purpose? And then we have the present, active, indicative, second person form of a verb, which means to be present. So it literally reads, friend, if it's a statement, you are being present. If it's a question, friend, for what purpose are you being present? If it's a question, I don't think it is meant to be truly inquisitive, for our Lord knew exactly what Judas was doing. So it would be rhetorical, implying, Judas I know and you know, and so just do it. If it's a statement, it implies acting according to the purpose. That's why the ESV and the New American Standard insert that word do. Do according to your purpose. It is... After all that, it's, it's a literary device the Lord is using, a rhetorical device to let Judas know, I know why you're here, you know why you're here, get it on with. Just do it. Luke adds to that, Judas said to him, Luke twenty two forty eight. Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Because that kiss intensifies it, it aggravates the whole thing. 
Judas is not only following through with the plan to betray the Lord, but he does so in a way that is really an ironic mockery of the entire relationship that they had. All of the goodness and all of the education and all of the nearness that Judas had with Christ, he bundles it all up and uses it to mock the relationship and betray Jesus with a kiss. And we see in the response that Jesus is not taken back. Jesus is not surprised. Jesus knows what's going to happen. And so is, that's why His answer is uh, sort of short and almost emotionless and cold, almost apathetic. We would imagine that as Judas gets near, Jesus might back away and say, Judas, don't do this. Judas, listen to me. We've been friends for three years now. Trust me, don't do this. But he doesn't. He stands there, takes the kiss. Judas, do what you came to do. In Acts chapter 1, Peter, quoting from Psalm 109, says, For it is written in the book of the Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. In a reference to Judas. And Jesus knew that passage of Scripture. Peter at that point knew that passage of Scripture. In John chapter 13, Jesus had said, The Scriptures, but the Scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. That's from Psalm 41 verse 9, which reads, Even my close friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Jesus is not surprised. Jesus is not taken back. He's short. He's to the point. He is resolved at this point. Just get the show on the road. He had already said, John 13, and you are clean, but not every one of you. And then John adds, for he knew who was to betray him. That's why he said not all of you were clean. John 17 and verse 12, he had prayed in the high priestly prayer, I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. We could go all the way back to John chapter 6, where John says, Jesus knew from the beginning who would betray him. So he knew. And so at this point, his devotion to the will of his Father, and the salvation of his church, and the fulfillment of all righteousness as laid out in the Scriptures, all of that seems to completely swallow up any sensitivity that there might be left with regard to Judas. And all he says is, friend, do what you came to do. Or, friend, why are you here? Would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Some of you through gracious providence and nearness to the means of grace, have been given opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to come to Christ, just like Judas. He had the opportunity at the table. And you felt conviction for sin, and you felt the need to cast yourself at the mercy of the judge over and over, maybe Sunday after Sunday, and you shrug it off. God is not obligated to give another chance. He's not obligated to, to prick your heart again. He can, at any moment, with perfect, impeccable justice, give you over to your lusts so that you never again feel any conviction, 
never again feel the need to make any effort toward righteousness and you just float to hell feeling fine. He can and does give men over to their lusts and their passions as we read in Romans 1. He gives men over to a debased mind. One commentator says, Mark this. If you set your face against His efforts to emancipate you from the carnal mind which is treachery and enmity to God, then these efforts will become more and more brief till at last the Savior, who once yearned to pluck you as a brand from the burning, shall treat you with the utmost brevity and most perfect coolness, scarce even condescending to express in this life His indignation at your crimes." In other words, he'll prick and he'll prick and over time that'll get more and more and more distant until the point when he says, fine. He's not obligated. Friend, do what you came to do. Would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? The last words Judas will ever hear from this mouth until the day of judgment when I would imagine Judas will be one of the ones who says, Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy in your name? Did I not do many mighty works in your name? Did I not cast out demons in your name? Lord, all of that service and one kiss is going to break the whole deal. All of the good things I did. I mean, I had my share in the ministry. All of that. And Lord, just one kiss. And Jesus is going to say, I never knew you. Depart from me. You cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Short, emotionless, not personalized, not special for Judas. The same thing that he gives to all who've rejected him. Depart. You're cursed. And I imagine that Judas will spend all eternity scraping and pawing at his lips, trying to remove the taste of the bloody sweat and the salty tears from his lips that will only serve to aggravate his hatred for this man that he pretended to love in this life. And yet it just drives him into deeper and deeper torments without end for all of eternity. He's already been suffering for almost 2,000 years. Think about that. Suffering and torment. Jesus says, do what you came to do. And he did it. In the end, Judas was held captive to his own lusts. Jesus is not the captive here. Judas is the captive. He wanted his sin. He wanted his money. Not Christ. And some of you, everything that I have said about Judas is true about you. When you leave this place, you will just go right back to your lusts. It's emotional to think about Judas. That doesn't mean anything. If you walk out the door and nothing's changed in your heart, you can do all of the stuff that Judas did without a heart change. Stop trusting in the things that you have done or are doing, experiences that you've had, things in the past... Is there a change of heart? What makes you to differ from Judas? Christ might be, I would, I would say hopefully even now, is offering salvation. He's not obligated to offer it next Sunday or tomorrow. He's not obligated to prick the heart again. 
As Isaiah says in Isaiah 55, 6, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. He's not obligated to be found. He reveals Himself gladly and willingly to men, but not because He's obligated to us to do that. While He may be found, because there may come a day when He's not found. While He is near, because there may come a day when He doesn't draw near anymore. He doesn't speak to you anymore. It's good to be amongst the people of God. It's good to hear the Word of God. It's good to grow in your understanding of the things of God. But none of that will save. And like Judas, I think there, there might be some who, are, who will, for all of eternity, be trying to erase from their memory little twinges of delight that you had when you were around the people of God. Or you would go home and you would say, yeah, that was kind of fun. Little moments of near faith or almost repentance are going to haunt for eternity and to torment you with the reality that was offered. The nearness that He had will torment you. That Christ was set before you in plain sight and you, you want to have nothing to do with Him for all eternity. Even the thought of that nearness will be repulsive in hell. Like, an, like oil in the pan. All of these experiences of, of the near work of the Spirit. Being near the people of God. I believe Christ visits with His people. I believe Christ meets with His church when, when you gather. I believe that an unconverted person can come into the church and be very, very, very close to the work of the Holy Spirit in the person right beside them and never experience it for themselves. And those experiences are going to serve like, like oil in a pan only to burn hotter and faster and, and with more intensity those to whom Christ drew near and yet they rejected Him. It's only going to make it worse. If, you're not, if you won't come to Christ, my advice would be get as far away as you can. Don't be near His work because it's only going to make it worse. The good things of God will be the condemnation heaped on the head of the one who rejects Christ. It'll be better in hell for, and in the judgment for pagans who worshipped rocks and ate their children than it will be for faithful churchgoers who make no application to Christ for salvation. They just keep doing and keep doing and keep doing with no real knowledge of Christ. All of the things that Judas did did not make him a Christian. Because he did not know Christ. He did not have a work of the Spirit of God in his heart. If, you're, if you've not been born again, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let's pray. It's very interesting when you study and you think about Judas and what he did. In John chapter 13... John tells us that it was Satan who put it into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. Now we all like a good upset, right? In, in, in a, a sporting event when the underdog wins or whatever. Talk about one of the all-time greatest upsets in history. He, the, the devil literally helped construct the victory throne of Christ. Christ said, when I'm lifted up, I'm going to draw all men to myself. And speaking of his death, he said, Now is the ruler of this world cast out. That's what happened. And yet Satan, you know, blindly probably, or 
at least just in pure wickedness, puts it into the heart of Judas to carry out this plan. Because the, as we've heard, the devil is God's devil and he, he does what needs to be done. Now following the crucifixion, Satan's aim has been to convince men of what he himself believed prior to the crucifixion, which is namely that the death of Jesus was the failure. If we could just get this man to die, well then this whole thing will go away. Somehow, something in the cross wasn't according to the plan. That's what he wants to get us to, to believe. And that's why you get these, these sad views of the atonement or the death of Christ. That we didn't really do anything there. That's what Satan believed. That when Christ died, that, that wasn't the, the win. That was the loss. We know it was the victory. So when we come to the Lord's table and we think soberly about the death of Christ and the cross of Christ, we're not contemplating a victim. We're contemplating the victor. We're contemplating the, the, the fulfillment of the win. He, he won at the cross. That God Almighty sent His Son into the world to save sinners. That's what Jesus did at the cross. He saved sinners. He did it. So take a moment... And uh, while the elements are passed, just think on that. Christ saved sinners at the cross. You don't have anything else to offer. There's nothing to add to that work. It's done. He's, that, that was the culmination of His obedience that has to stand in the place of all of our disobedience. All of our best obediences don't add up to the, that point where He was obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. He, he won it there. So, so think on Christ and His salvation and then we'll dine together.